Uh, we're coming to you live out of speakfreeradio.com from the good folks there across the pond. And uh, yeah, it's, it's Wednesday the 28th of February and I have been really, really looking forward to this show. Um, your hosts tonight will be Mr. Scott and Mrs. Shelley Tasker. Good evening, Shelley. Glad you could join us. Oh, well, she's nearly joined us. Let's put it that way. Anyway, um, yeah, we've got a great show for you tonight and uh, got a guest that I've been really looking forward to having on. So um, without further ado, I should say that we here on the Kernow Connection reserve the rights to all our words and all our thoughts. We simply do this because it's impossible to reserve the rights to anyone else's and as a thought worth bearing in mind for any practitioner of law. and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. 
Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. go poignant poignant words from uh, well the then uh, Dwight D Eisenhower and uh, you know he uh, <laughs> he led quite the conquest across Europe um, through a bit of a tantrum in order to do so um, Montgomery didn't really uh, want the Americans having the uh, the command over that you know over the operations but that's the way it was and uh well there we go so poignant words also because it is now going to it's it's this year it will be 80 years since the d-day landings um and uh well there we go shelly are you with us i am you are <laughs> good Got evening here. sorry for being late that's oh, quite all right that's quite all right it's lovely to hear your voice i hope everything's good with you oh um, bless you we have with us tonight shelly phil hadley um, uh, normally we only uh, sort of do half the show or, or even a quarter of the show on a Kerno connection but Phil um, is a historian and writer and uh, yeah he's kindly agreed to come on the show with us tonight and uh, impart some of his insights onto us and the listening audience so uh, Phil can you hear us yes I can good evening to you both hello there. good evening Phil good evening um, Brilliant to have you with us. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, so I guess uh, without hyping everything too much and putting you on the spot, I guess I ought to ask you to give yourself a bit of a brief description to the audience, give them a bit of your background and what it is you do. And uh, yeah, over to you. OK, I'm a, yeah, I'm an author and historian who specialises in Cornwall in the Second World War. Uh, there's been a, an interest for a, a number of years um, even while I was uh, working in uh, education. Um, that's now finished, and for the last uh, 10, 12 years, then I've been focusing my, uh, my efforts and my interests on uh, researching and uh, writing. Uh, I've uh, self-published a couple of uh, historical novels set in Cornwall during the, uh, the Second World War, uh, and working on the, uh, the third. Um, I've also published a, a number of uh, factual e-books uh, about different aspects of Cornwall in the uh, in the Second World War. Uh, that all started from um, years ago. Uh, an old boy who was in the uh, in the Home Guard um, got talking to me, and he told me a story of how shortly after they'd f uh, formed in the summer of 1940, uh, they were called out to help the uh, the regular army search the uh, upper reaches of the River Fowl here in Cornwall. Uh, two dead Germans had been found in a rubber dinghy uh, in the upper reaches of the Fowl on one of the creeks. Uh, they weren't airmen, 
so they hadn't parachuted in. So the concern was that they had been inserted either by boat or by uh, by submarine. Right. So with the regular army, they spent three days and three nights uh, searching all the, uh, I say, the woodland on these uh, steep banks on the various creeks of the uh, the river Fowl. They found nothing more, uh, and so they were then stood down, and the whole thing uh, hushed up. I found one other person, also a member of the Home Guard, who could corroborate the uh, uh, the story. Uh, so for the opening of my uh, my first novel, what I've done is to put a third German into that rubber dinghy who survived whatever incident had occurred, uh, who is then on the loose spying out the defence preparations that Britain was making, uh, fearing uh, a German invasion at any moment in the summer of, uh, of 1940. Uh, and so the uh, the story is the um, uh, the efforts to track him down and to uh, uh, to chase him. Um, it's all set along uh, what's known as the Bodmin stop line, uh, which was a defensive line, thirty miles between Padstow and, and Foy, utilising the uh, the natural barriers of the Camel and the Foy uh, estuaries. Um, by the 14th of November 1940, 14 pillboxes and 36 roadblocks uh, had been completed along with two coastal artillery batteries that defended the, uh, the estuaries and uh, minefields under the water. Um, an estimate of cost dated the 3rd of January 1941 shows a further 72 pillboxes and 20 roadblocks uh, were planned. Uh, so this was going to be a major defensive line across Cornwall. Right. Um, so Johan, my spy, is checking out these defence preparations uh, and seeking to, uh, to sabotage them. So the, the story is the attempts to track him down and capture him. Um, my hero is uh, Major Isaac Trevenel, who's in Cornwall at the request of Churchill to report on the, uh, the defences. Uh, and he gets embroiled in the efforts to nail the, uh, the villain, as it were, helped by the, uh, the beautiful ATS girl, Elizabeth Trelucky. Um, so, <laughs> excellent. It's a good mix there to uh, to make a, a a good story. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, and obviously all based off of the information you found regarding, you know, um, you know the, the defences and the fortification line and everything. That's interesting. I didn't know that about Cornwall. Yes, I, knew, I the, knew about the minefields and the the deep minefields, the illegal ones even as well, um, because sh uh, a little way off of where I was brought up, uh, Morganporth, there were three U-boats uh, that were sunk. And mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't till after the war that they found out that, that they were ones that ha the ha British high commander told the German high command that they'd sunk in other places because it was an illegal minefield. So you, you mm -hmm. probably know a bit about that anyway, I'm sure. But I'm you know, telling you how to suck big eggs here. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So you, you've written that. So that was the first of the two. And... Yes, the second uh, called A Place and a Name continues the story in the spring of 1941. Um, it features the work of the, the Radio Security Service and its listening posts down at St. Earth near Hale, uh, where they listened in to the Abwehr wireless traffic. Right. Uh, the, R the RSS was one of the organisations feeding messages into uh, Bletchley uh, Park, which enabled the British to know what the Germans were up to, uh, sometimes even before the German commanders on the ground uh, did. Um, so we had one of nine listening stations for the RSS in Britain um, down at St. Earth. Uh, so part of the story um, uh, involves action and, uh, and so on down there. And then the, uh, the third novel that I'm currently working on uh, with a working title of Enemy Without Cause uh, is set in the first half of 1944 
uh, when Cornwall was flooded with American forces training for and uh, preparing for D-Day. Right. So, yeah, and that obviously, um, well, obviously that's that's quite a biggie over here. I mean, the population swelled ridiculously down here, didn't it, during during the war? Yes. I, I mean, lots of people have said to me, oh, you know, uh, when I tell them I'm researching kind of Cornwall in the Second World War, they said, well, you know, not an awful lot could have happened uh, down there. Um, but I said, yes, um, uh, at one stage, Cornwall was actually the most bombed county in the whole of England for three months in uh, the first part of 1941. Now, we didn't suffer the uh, horrendous damage and the, the high casualty figures that some of the uh, the cities did. Uh, but because of the airfields, because of the uh, the docks, because of its strategic uh, position defending the Western approaches to the United Kingdom, uh, then it was uh, a major target. Uh, so, the, you know, the Germans paid a, a lot of attention. Hence, we had uh, an awful lot of uh, infrastructure put here, not just airfields, uh, docks and facilities. Uh, uh, SOE and SIS, uh, the intelligence services and um, special operations executive uh, acting from Cornwall to, to go into occupied uh, France. Um, we also had all manner of listening posts and wireless posts uh, and so on. We had the uh, the telegraph cable stations at Porth Curnow and Stenon, which was uh, Britain's communication with its uh, its empire and its allies around the world. Uh, we had the wireless beam station at Bodmin, which was the wireless connection to North America. Um, that was the transmitter station uh, down here in Cornwall, the Bodmin radio station. Uh, so there was an awful lot of uh, uh, that was of strategic uh, importance. So uh, an amazing amount uh, happened. So uh, in my novels, the historical background is as accurate as I can make it based on the uh, the research that I that I've done. Uh, obviously, my uh, lead characters are, are just pure fiction, and uh, what happens to them is pure fiction. But it's a it's a weaving together, if you like, of fact and fiction to uh, to tell the tale as a way of illustrating uh, just what was going on in Cornwall. Uh, during the Second World War. Yeah, and obviously for, for subjects, you know, obviously a lot of people view history as a very dry subject. Shelley, you, you sort of viewed history as a bit of a dry subject before we started doing this show, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I probably won't be able to contribute very much at all tonight because uh, you're the war fanatic, you know your stuff, and I've only recently, since we've been doing the show actually, been looking into Cornish history, I'm afraid to say. Um, I just wasn't interested at school. And I love it now. So, um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, but it, it weaves in, a, a, it's It's a nice way of, of putting all the history there, but actually, you know, for, for all those folks that like, you know, like reading a novel and, and just need, they don't want the dry side of history. It's really nice. Exactly. You, you've yeah. been able to set it in, it, it, you've been able to create a narrative, a fictional narrative, but with, you know, with the backdrop of real history which is a, a really nice idea, really nice idea. And you have to have, you must have to have a, a really good insight into the local history you know, of that time to, to be able to do yeah, that. Yes, so I, I think that's where my, my teaching experience, I was a, a history school teacher teaching secondary school uh, children for 24 years. Uh, and I think that's where that, that helps, that in a sense to, to keep them enthralled with history, you had to kind of hook them in, if you like, at the beginning of the lesson. Uh, and so in each of my, my novels, uh, I hope that there's a fairly kind of dramatic sort of uh, opening uh, that gets the reader intrigued, thinking, yes, I want to continue. Um, you know, I want to keep going with uh, with this. Uh, 
and hopefully they'll, they'll enjoy a great yarn. Uh, you know, it's been described back to me as a, an adventure story, a thriller, uh, a kind of a romantic thriller because of the sort of the love interest that's uh, generated there. Um, but within that, then, you know, I'm hoping to, uh, to sort of showcase, as I say, a lot of what was going on in Cornwall uh, during, the, uh, during the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, Cornwall was impacted huge. I know Cornwall was impacted hugely um, during the war. Um, uh, my biggest, my, my sort of, I grew up right next to St. Evel Air Base. I went to St. Evel School for my, mm-hmm. um, you know, for my primary education. So obviously, um, you know, St. Evel Air Base, where, you know, at the beginning, it was the only air base in the southwest to actually participate in the Battle of Britain because it, I think it was the only one pretty much ready in time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, in 1940, it was the only one in uh, in fighter command, uh, and so the um, the squadrons at uh, RAF St. Evel uh, were defending the southwest approaches uh, and involved in uh, air combat all the way up to uh, to Weymouth. Um, so they, they covered a vast area of the uh, the southwest of uh, of England. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously lots and lots of satellite bases sprung up afterwards, um, you know, up and down, up and down this little peninsula. I mean, this this little peninsula uh, for you folks over, over the pond there in, in the US or wherever you are in the world, Cornwall is a tiny, tiny little place. And we were, as I say, we are still peppered with old airfields and things like that. <laughs> yes, I mean, Cornwall is actually uh, England's ninth longest uh, county because we're in a sense we're a long thin county uh, just over 100 miles kind of long uh, but with 420 miles of uh, of coastline um, so in terms of having to defend that against a possible uh, invasion uh, when Hitler in um, his um, objective number 16 had singled out Cornwall for special attention prior to the main uh, invasion um, Hitler and his uh, commanders were aware of the significance of Cornwall in terms of the the cable stations that I've mentioned, in terms of the wireless uh, connections. So uh, they were planning sort of special operations to to occupy the whole of Cornwall to deal a blow to to British communications uh, before their their main invasion. Wow. Yeah. Now there's there's a thought. Shelley, you could have been speaking German. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the old oh that's the old adage isn't it yeah if, if hitler had won we'd all be speaking german um, yeah oh man so um do you uh so not to deviate from from the um subject matter so do you uh, do you still um sort of do, are you still into all the research or are you just solely sort of writing novels and stuff now? Uh, yes, I am still into uh, uh, to all the research. Um, you know, that's a, for me, that's been a lifelong learning uh, process. Um, I started as a youngster um, kind of hearing my parents' stories. They were children during the Second World War uh, in the East End of London. So in a sense, uh, I was hearing their stories and experiences as a, as a young child. As I got older, uh, I kind of read whatever I could get my hands on about the Second World War. Um, in Cornwall, my uh, my father worked as a, a Christian a, a evangelist. Um, so he had lots of people who would come and talk to him about all manner of, uh, of things. Uh, and there were a number of people who uh, opened up to him uh, about their wartime experiences. Um, I can remember one guy who'd been a prisoner of war of the, uh, of the Japanese, um, 
bumped into my dad as we were walking together through uh, through Bodmin uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, and the conversation somehow just got on to his wartime experience. And he started opening up to dad uh, about what had happened to him sort of 35 uh, years uh, earlier in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Um, dad eventually invited him home. Uh, and while dad, in a sense, kind of helped him with the trauma that he was uh, reliving, as it were. Uh, I was actually sat out uh, kind of on the stairs, um, you know, just listening to the, uh, the story, soaking it all up. Um, and so there have been a number of people that through uh, my parents that I met, whose wartime stories I, I heard that, that fascinated me and got me hooked. And when I was uh, in school, I had a good history teacher who um, was able to kind of channel that enthusiasm, as it were, um, down the academic route. So uh, I went off, uh, left Cornwall to do a, a university degree uh, and then came back to uh, to teach uh, history in the uh, in the county. So Cornwall's been a passion. The Second World War has been a, a passion. So all through my life, I've been kind of collecting stories and anecdotes and, uh, uh, and so on, collecting photographs and uh, documents and, uh, and what have you. Uh, and, but while I was teaching, I never had the time to, to do a great deal with them. Uh, so now that uh, I've finished teaching, then I've had the time to be able to, uh, to kind of sort them and go through them and, uh, and to turn them then into uh, these historic novels that, um, you know, hopefully will get the stories out to a, a much wider audience. Yeah, you must have a fantastic ar archive. I'm just, I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking with my nerd hat on at the moment because obviously I, I'm sat here surrounded by books and, and, and memorabilia and bits and bobs and, and pictures and, and paintings and things. And I, I just, <laughs> if you're anything like yes, me, likewise, you must, have, you must have a brilliant archive. I'm sat in my office, yeah, with kind of bookshelves full of books about the uh, the war, boxes of documents and photographs uh, and so on. Um, I've got quite a collection of photographs of Cornwall in the Second World War that I, I take around to kind of village halls and church halls and do an, an exhibition or uh, I've been to various events like the um, uh, West of England uh, steam engine uh, rally on the Stythian showground. Oh, yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, their rural and bygone section invited me last year uh, for the first time to to bring my exhibition and display it over the uh, the weekend and been invited back again uh, this year. Um so we, we've done kind of events like that, uh, you know, displaying the uh, the photographs and uh, and selling my books, uh, and so just kind of getting this story out to uh, uh, to people who live in Cornwall, but were you know in a sense unaware of um, you know what happened. I mean, at the uh, the Stithian show, uh, there was one guy who came into the the tent looking at a photograph, uh, and he called me over and he said, "My house is kind of just out." Of that aerial photograph of the uh, American uh, sausage camp at uh, Will Busy uh, down near Chasewater. Uh, he said, I never knew that happened 50 yards from my house. It was all new to him. So, you know, to be able to uh, open people's eyes to, to just what went on in Cornwall during the Second War, World War is, uh, you know, one of my passions and sort of my mission, as it were. Yeah, you, um, I, I bet you could go on some fascinating walks. I mean, um... You know, I, I could, uh, there's a fair few places around Cornwall that I could sort of go and sort of say, wow, I mean, this place and this occurred. And, you know, uh, I said, I mentioned when we spoke on Saturday, I mentioned very briefly, and Shelley's heard the story probably a million times about the bomber that went into the cliffs at, uh, at Morgan Porth, where I grew up, the Wellington mm -hmm. bomber, 
piloted by a Canadian chap, and they were they were overcome by a fuel leak, and they you know sadly they didn't they didn't make it to the runway. They were sort of 20 somewhere between 28 and 26 seconds off a of wheels down on the runway, you know, and, and they, they didn't make it. And that's what kind of inspired me to sort of look into things, because I used to, shamefully, used to play around. Uh, there was a, a, a mine shaft um, that was dug into the cliff face, halfway up the cliff on mm-hmm. that particular face. And we used to sift around there as kids and find bits of the aircraft it was an old wellington you know and one of my friends at one point even found a live round there a live 303 round <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> so yeah pretty crazy i mean yeah i bet there's some uh, i mean shelly where you are you've got quite a lot of um you know there's quite a lot of stuff went on in your area during the war as well um shelly's sort of red roof camborne area you know that was quite a big uh uh, there were quite a, a few bombings in that direction as well, weren't there? Um, I'd, I'd like to say, oh, yes, but no, I'm ignorant <laughs> to it all, I'm afraid. <laughs> I am sorry. Yes is the answer. Um, because be, because of RAF uh, Port Reith, which opened in March 1941, um, the Germans bombed it within a month of it being, uh, being opened. So... Uh, Yes, a fair bit happened. Uh, And then obviously later in the war, um, the Americans came uh, in quite considerable numbers, uh, you know, to the Camborne Red Ruth uh, area. Uh, And there's still one or two Nissan huts on one or two of the farms uh, sort of outside of Red Ruth uh, and the Scoria area and so on, um, you know, that remain from that time. Wow. Yeah. So much I don't know about, well, Lots of, I really wish I had a history teacher like you. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. I just actually wish that I listened at school. Yeah. Well, no, I was going to say the same thing. My history teacher at school used to, we'd have an hour, an hour and 10 minutes lesson. And for the first 35 minutes, he would give us a monologue. And for the second 35 minutes, he would repeat the monologue and stop at various points and point at a child, a poor, some unsuspecting child, and expect them to fill in the gaps. Otherwise, they weren't listening for the first <laughs> half of the lesson. And it just, it, it was conducive to, you know, keeping a bunch of rowdy teenagers in order, but it wasn't conducive to actually learning anything. <laughs> I agree with you totally. <laughs> Um, Right, we're just past the bottom of the hour, folks, so we're going to have a very short break, uh, and uh, you're listening to speakfreeradio.com, and uh, coming up after us, at the top of the hour, is uh, the amazing Jim Fetzer with Authentic News. Um, We will be back in approximately three and a bit minutes' time um, after this little interlude. Enjoy. Big cigar. 
He pops away every night and day with a twinkle in his eye. And all the while, behind that smile lurks many an untold lie. Down white hallway, you'll see his car. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere, the friend of the USSR. V stands for vanquish. It's the slogan of his land. And he'll fight until it's finished. And there's no one left to stand. He'll keep the red flag flying, though hammered black and blue. For he's getting more than he bargained for, that fat friend of the Jew. So keep your chins up, one and all, and remember what I say. If Britons were to Britain true, they'd send that man away. Who is that man with the big cigar? He's here, he's there, he's everywhere, that man with the big cigar. Charlie and his orchestra. So you're listening to speakfreeradio.com. We have, uh, you're listening to speakfreeradio.com and the Kerno Connection with uh, Malefica Scott and Shelley Tasker. And we have with us a fantastic guest, uh, Mr. Phil Hadley. Um, and we were just talking about uh, the sort of build up of American troops or just touching on the build up of American troops in Cornwall before the D Day landings. So, um, yeah, uh, welcome back, folks. Great Thank you. Tune. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're so funny, Charlie and his orchestra. I I love the old you know the Glenn Miller stuff and all the the, the big band swing. I think it, I think it's fantastic. And um, apparently Churchill was actually a big fan of um, Charlie and his orchestra, probably because they mentioned him in some of their songs. I expect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, are you familiar with Charlie and his orchestra, um, Phil? Uh, yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourites is Spike Jones and his orchestra, because oh, uh, yeah. they use all, all manner of weird and wonderful uh, sound effects and uh, and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly worth uh, your listeners uh, checking out on uh, YouTube or whatever their music streaming platform is. Yeah, Spike Jones and his orchestra. Um, lots of humour uh, in it. Uh, they take some of the classic sort of wartime songs and put a completely different spin on it. And, uh, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, um, yeah. So, what do you what do you know about the sort of the build up of American troops then? Uh, you know, what sort of volume of American troops did we actually have down here? Um, I think just prior to uh, to D Day, we're, we're we're probably talking about one hundred and seventy thousand uh, wow. being here in the county of uh, of Cornwall. Um, I mean, the first Americans arrived in the UK in March 1942, 
um, they were assigned the southwest as the area for which, from which they would launch their part of the cross-channel invasion. Um, so the first arrivals here in Cornwall were the U.S. Navy, uh, who would have established a, a U.S. Navy advanced amphibious base at Falmouth, uh, setting up their headquarters in the Green Bank Hotel. Right. Um, I know the um, Green Bank Hotel. I know the I know the location anyway. Right, yeah, that, and that's where the officers kind of uh, resided. The, uh, there were 300 enlisted men who occupied the King's Hotel by the Prince of Wales Pier uh, in Falmouth. Uh, and then the Seabees, the construction battalions, built a, a hutted camp uh, at the Beacon Falmouth. Uh, it's now a large council house uh, uh, estate on top of the hill, um, but there was a huge uh, American camp there. Uh, they also occupied numerous other buildings in and around Falmouth, opened a, a U.S. service club at 51 Market Street, uh, they took over the St. Michael's Hotel and opened a hospital and dispensary there. Um, they opened a small attached base in St. Moore's for servicing their landing craft, uh, where the uh, construction battalion have actually left their calling card in the cement. And you can still see what they've written in the uh, in the cement there. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. I know there's certain part, certain areas of Falmouth you can still sort of see the tank tracks and stuff on the on the you know the sort of pre-made jetties or the the. Well, yeah, on the roads down to the embarkation hards yeah, and, that's it. Uh, yeah, you can still and so on. Yeah. See the marks of tank, tank tracks and stuff like that down there. I yeah. knew, knew about that. The Navy also established a base in, in Foy, uh, where the number eight jetty was to handle all the ammunition for the 29th Inf Infantry Division for D-Day and for the month afterwards. Um, the Seabees built various camps at Foy, the largest of which was at Windmill uh, for a thousand men. That's now the site of the modern primary school uh, in Foy. There was another at Briarfield on the place grounds for 500 uh, and a hundred bed hospital at uh, Carthnethic House. Uh, later, Foy was to become the home to the U.S. Hospital Corps Training School, uh, which between March and May uh, 1944 put 3000 men through its course on the, uh, the medical aspects of amphibious warfare. Uh, the, the medical skills were actually tested in April 1944 when there were 510 confirmed cases of food poisoning amongst the U.S. forces in Foy. <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> 510, that's quite a lot to deal with. Yeah, the Americans actually blamed the uh, the poor hygiene at the uh, sort of the hostelries and hotels in Foy. Uh, but the locals pointed out to get that number of uh, confirmed cases uh, kind of in one go, uh, it had to be food coming out of the uh, the American camps, um, you know, not served up by the uh, by the Cornish. Yeah. Uh, as a result of that, a number of the Foy based crews were actually withdrawn from the ill fated exercise Tiger. Um, so their food poisoning probably saved them from a, uh, a worse fate on. Uh, so you know, what was Operation um, Tiger? It was one of the, uh, the landing uh, exercises prior to uh, D-Day uh, where uh, troops from uh, Cornwall and Plymouth embarked on ships, uh, were sailing around um, uh, the waters off the, uh, the Dorset coast of Lime Bay, um, due to land on um, Slapton Sands uh, when um, a flotilla of German e-boats got in amongst them uh, and attacked them with torpedoes, uh, sunk uh, one of the, uh, the landing ships, badly damaged uh, another, uh, and 790 uh, Americans were, uh, were killed. Wow. Wow. Um, sadly, a lot of those died because... Uh, they hadn't been given instruction in how to put their life preservers on uh, and actually put them on upside down, which meant when they went in the water with uh, in their uniforms and helmets and uh, often with kind of other equipment and so on that they were trying to cling on to, uh, 
meant that they kind of went sort of top heavy. So we're head down, uh, backsides up. Oh my uh, God, that's horrific. And so lots of them drowned as a result of, uh, of that. The other thing uh, that happened in terms of the, the defence for the uh, sort of the convoy, um, uh, that was provided by British warships uh, who hadn't been given the American radio frequencies, so they were unable to communicate uh, with the uh, American convoy. Oh, my uh, word. Complete fast just before um, uh, you know, uh, D-Day caused major uh, uh, concern. Um uh, especially as uh, some of the officers involved were uh, bigoted. They, they'd been given the intelligence clearance for D-Day, uh, and until all their bodies had been uh, recovered, then there was concern that they'd actually been uh, uh, oh, captured taken, taken hostage. Uh, and taken as prisoner, and yeah. the, the whole kind of secret of D-Day would be uh, would be revealed. So, um, so yeah, so that was Exercise Tiger. Wow, that's that's there, there you go. You learned every day's a school day. Uh, you learned something yeah, every day. I didn't know didn't know anything about that. That so that's fascinating. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. The um, the American Air Force also came to Cornwall, uh, and while they had units at Cornwall's major airfields at St Evel and Portreath, uh, it was decided to turn the pre-war landing ground at Trebelzu on the coast near Newquay uh, into an airfield predominantly for them. Uh, so the British knocked down the uh, the Carnanton Chain Home Radar Station as it stood in the way of the planned runways, and RAF St Morgan was created. Uh, an American aircraft came in, in in large numbers to an airfield that boasts one of the longest runways in the UK. Um, it was June 1943 that the, uh, the 491st Base and Air Base Squadron of the Air Transport Command USAAF arrived, uh, the first landing being made by a, a B-24 Liberator, followed closely by a, a, a B-17. Uh, they also wanted to expand their capacity, uh, so selected an area just north of uh, northeast of Rautor, uh, despite the locals saying that the weather wouldn't be conducive to flying. Uh, so we built RAF Davidstowe for them, oh, yeah. uh, although a number of crews there paid the price crashing into the tours of the moor in the uh, in the Cornish mist. Yeah. Uh, but that airfield did play a crucial role against uh, German submarines and shipping in the uh, the run up to uh, to D-Day. Yeah, I've I have been personally been through the entirety of the crash log of um, St David Stowmore because they've, they've published mm -hmm. their crash log, and Cornwall is literally just littered with air crashes, isn't it? It's fa it's absolutely yes. fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, so many of them, and you know, so many of the entries were crashed into crashed into hills in 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 fog you know yes um, so yeah yeah, yeah the, the american army then arrived in large numbers from may 1943 uh, onwards um 2000 were stationed in the town of uh, bodmin based at the victoria barracks the dcli depot in bodmin uh, which had been vastly extended with the construction of the walker lines uh, hutted camp uh, nissen huts provided the accommodation for the men while the officers were either in the victoria barracks buildings or some of the hotels and larger houses around the town so bodmin was home to the 115th infantry regiment the 110th field artillery battalion and then the 104th medical uh, battalion uh, a second battalion from the 115th were based in launceston uh, the 175th infantry regiment were based at penzance and ives and pra sands uh, and the 134th Infantry Regiment was centred on Camborne. Uh, imbued, we had the uh, the Second Ranger Infantry Battalion training on the Cornish Cliffs uh, for the assault on Point du Hoc. Um, and there were numerous service units, quartermaster units, ordnance units, engineer units. My list of who was where in Cornwall extends to kind of nine pages of, of A4. 
Oh um, my word! Yeah, well, we won't ask you to list them all, right? No. <laughs> but, um, well, no. Look, I tell you what, I'd I'd love to because I mean, an hour just goes so quick. I mean, we've we've still got a little, uh, you know, plenty of time left on the show, really. But I, you know, if if any of our US listeners have got any, you know, maybe have any questions for Phil, maybe we could ask you to come on again, Phil, and and fill in some other gaps for us at some point because, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I knew nothing about Operation yes, and- Tiger at all. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I've also got questions for, uh, I say, for some of your listeners. There, there are some things that I've been um, unable to uh, to sort. For example, um, down at Penn Clinic, which uh, today is a, a school outside of uh, Truro for special needs uh, students, uh, it was actually housed um, the First Engineer Special Brigade headquarters. Um, prior to uh, to D-Day. Uh, and one of the things they set up in uh, Penn Clinic House uh, was their secret uh, map room that could handle the, um, the plans, the loading tables, the maps, as well as the latest intelligence on the far shore. Uh, and so 173 officers and men of the intelligence section were assigned to the operation and security of just that one room. There were two armed guards on the door 24 hours a day. Other U.S. servicemen guarded the house. The perimeter of the grounds were protected by British servicemen, and the Americans considered it the most secure location uh, in Cornwall. Uh, It was visited by uh, Eisenhower, by Churchill, um, Montgomery, uh, and so on. Um, Now, on one of the the trees in the grounds at Penkelenic is carved H. Uffelman, USA 43. Now, I've been unable to find out any more about this character. So if anybody knows any more details or likes to take up the challenge, then then please do let me know what you know or, or discover. Fascinating. Um, so how's the how's the second? How's the spe- the name spelt? Uh, U-F-F-L-E-M-A-N. Uffelman. Right. Yeah. So the initial is H and then it's Uffelman. Uh, USA 43 is what he's carved on the uh, on the tree. Uh, now. We know that there was a detachment from the 165th Signal Photo Company, uh, also at, at Penn Clinic, to deal with the, uh, the photographs and so on that were needed in this uh, kind of top secret uh, room. Um, and one of their guys came back in 1994 before going to Normandy for the 50th anniversary and actually shared a few of his, uh, his photographs. I've got two or three of the, uh, the photographs that he took at, at Penn Clinic. Um, nothing inside the house because it was so secret, uh, but of kind of troops outside and in the grounds and uh, and so on. Uh, so if anybody's relatives served and Penn Kalenic is a name that's kind of in their diary or their memoirs or you know on the back of a photograph or something, uh, then I would I would love to hear to be able to find out a bit more about H. Uffelman. Yeah, that that is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> little things like that though isn't it it's always little things like that that really inspire you you know i've got two um i've got two chairs in my room i'm just walking over to them now luxuries of having a wireless headset so uh, i've got two chairs in here and it is they are uh, my granddad rescued them from he used to work up on RAF St Evel in in his mm-hmm. last in the last days of his um that's my granddad on my dad's side um, uh, you know, in the last days of the RAF, and at one point, uh, they'd got a whole load of surplus chairs that they were going to just. They, they had a huge stack of them. They were just going to set light to them, and I've got two of them here. Uh, and it's uh, the uh, the American Seating Company 
Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's got a patent date and everything on the back. But these were obviously chairs that were imported over by the U.S., um, you know, the, the U.S. military and used for briefing rooms, etc., etc. And, and And on the back of them, you can tell there were board servicemen scratching their initials. And this, so I've got two chairs in this room with just loads of, you know, obviously scratched in you know, graffiti essentially on the back on the backs of them from mm-hmm. when they were bored yep. in briefings you know <laughs> so it would be interesting to know where you know who you know who inscribed some of those you know and what their stories were it's, it's always little things like that that fascinate me so yes um, and i mean down by some of the uh, embarkation hards both down on the uh, on the river fowl uh, and also down um uh, on the Tamar in uh, uh, Mount Edgecombe, uh, on some of the trees there, uh, there are initials kind of carved uh, uh, and so on. So people realising that they're going to war wanted to leave some kind of mark uh, as to you know where they'd been, who they were, uh, uh, and so on, to leave a, a calling card. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's quite moving to think that for some of these uh, these young men that were going into Normandy on the, on the 6th of June, 1944, the last bit of, if you like, fun of life, uh, the last bit of enjoyment of beautiful countryside was here in Cornwall. Yeah. Uh, and, you, you know, when, so when I, when I go and walk on some of the embarkation hards or down the, uh, the roads that lead to them and, and so on, or walk around the old barracks in, uh, in Bodmin, uh, to me, it's, it's that kind of thought that, you know, these people went and, I mean, for example, out of the 2,000 that were stationed in Bodmin, only 500 of them survived the end of the war. Wow. Um, uh, and while they weren't... The, of surviving. Yeah. yeah. While they weren't the first wave that went into uh, Omaha on D-Day, they, uh, they landed at about half past 10 onwards uh, when the beach was still under enemy fire, uh, but they weren't part of that horrendous first wave that was, you know, just scythed down uh, by the, uh, uh, the German defences. Yeah. Um, even so, as you say, one in four of them, uh, you know, not making the end of the war, uh, then that makes it quite poignant. Uh, and to me, remembering them, remembering their stories uh, is part of what I, why I do what I do uh, in terms of trying to, to, to tell those stories and to make that history known. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. It's so important. Um, you know, that's what spurs me on as well in many respects. You know, a time... At a time in history when uh, every attempt is being made to wipe out our cultural history, whether we like, whether we, you know, whether we agree with what happened in the past or not. As I said to you before the show, I was I was a bit miffed when they took the name of the um, 617 Dambusters Squadron mascot off of the grave purely because it insulted some people and Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't matter whether you whether you agree with what happened in history or not simply by attempting to erase things that are offensive nowadays doesn't change what occurred (laughs) you know and if anything it just makes people more naive by removing these things you know Mm -hmm. so it's vitally important that all these memories are kept alive and and i did a a yes well, I, I've got a quote which is actually inside the uh, the front of my first novel from Churchill, uh, which says, "If the present tries to sit in judgment of the past, it will lose the future. Criticism is easy, achievement is difficult." Yeah, well, never a truer word Very spoken. True. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's actually a, a a brilliant little quote. I've yeah, yeah. 
Oh, wow. So, um, I'm just trying to think. Would you, would you be... Uh, could you... Just for now, because I'm not sure how much time we've got left, because we started late. I don't know whether we're finishing late or whether we're finishing on time. I, I think I don't... we're finishing late. Are we finishing late? Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad somebody. Oh, knows. I don't. I don't know. I'm not actually. I'm not sure. No. Okay. <laughs> well, Sorry, I we'll, misread that. We'll find out. We'll find out sooner or later. <laughs> but I don't want Phil. I don't want you to lose the opportunity of um, you know letting people know where they can find your work. Um, and, you know, obviously, if, if they feel so inclined to help support you with it by buying a book or two. And, you know, uh, it'll obviously help you with your research and all that kind of thing. So, OK, the best place to start is my website, uh, which is philhadleypublications.com. philhadleypublications.com. Uh, and there they'll find all the details of my historic novels. They'll find uh, my um, uh, e-books. Uh, on different aspects of Cornwall uh, in the uh, in the war. Uh, there's also uh, a monthly blog um, about aspects of Cornwall during the Second World War. Uh, and I started for the uh, for the six months first six months of this year. Uh, I'm actually looking at different aspects of the Americans in Cornwall in the run up to the D-Day uh, commemorations because I've been asked to be involved in some of those D-Day 80 events being held uh, in Cornwall. Uh, including a special commemoration of the two embarkation hards on the River Fowl on Saturday, the 1st of June this year, the, the date that the US troops started to embark here in uh, in Cornwall. Um, so, yeah, so the website's the best place to uh, to start, and there'll be plenty on there uh, to keep you going. Uh, they can also go to my YouTube channel, which is called Filling Cornwall, uh, where I've posted a series of, uh, of videos uh, showing Cornwall during the war or looking at the remains of wartime fortifications uh, here in Cornwall. The videos are entirely amateur, uh, but they're just a way of getting the history out there um, and you know, telling those stories. Uh, and likewise, if you know, any of your listeners have photos or stories of their relatives in Cornwall during the war that they're willing to share, uh, then they can also get in touch through my, uh, my website or uh, through you uh, here at the radio studio. Yeah, uh, well, that would be fantastic. I would like to urge people to do that because the, the, the sharing of information is everything. And it may be that you'll put a tiny piece of the jigsaw together for Phil to, yeah, to help him complete a picture or vice versa. You, you might be, you might send him something and he'll say, ah, I've got loads of stuff on this particular thing. Uh, as you say, you've got quite the archive, haven't you? So, you yeah. know, <laughs> Can I ask a question? No. <laughs> Can I have input? <laughs> Far away. <laughs> I am here. I'm here. Um, by the way, we are finishing late, Maleficus. Um, uh, okay. We've got one finishing at 10.08, yes. Um, what do you know, Phil, about the um, the bombing in Plymouth um, that was on the seaside? It's not on the seaside. What, what do you call it? I'll tell you for why, because my mum's uncle he was 21 years old and he was killed in that bombing right and we we went to Plymouth and we we actually like went through all the headstones and found his headstone and it, it was really quite eerie you know 21 years old is uh, mm -hmm. an awful age but I don't know much about the story behind it is that right information? yes <laughs> Be because of the naval dockyard uh, at Devonport then Plymouth was uh, uh, targeted um considerably during the war. Uh, it suffered two major blitzes, one in 1940 uh, and another in 1941, um, in April 1941. Um, and uh, literally hundreds of people were uh, were killed. Um, 
for me, one of the most moving uh, sights in Plymouth is to go into the Efford Cemetery, uh, where there is actually a, a mass grave uh, of those who don't have uh, their own personal grave because they weren't identified and so on um, at, at the time. Uh, and so there's this mass grave with several hundred uh, buried uh, in it from the, uh, the Plymouth Blitz of uh, April 1941. Um, and I mean, Plymouth's been in the news with its uh, the bomb that was found at Keyham, uh, somebody oh, digging yeah. up their back garden uh, just these, uh, <laughs> last week. Um, and for me, that's quite interesting because you can look at the uh, the map census of the bombing in uh, in Plymouth, uh, and most German bombers would drop a stick of uh, of eight bombs, and you can see them on the map census, kind of in a line, and you can count them: one, two, three, four, five, six. Hang on a minute. Where's number seven? Where's number eight? <laughs> and so, uh, ah, and so events one. like events like Kiem then kind of show where they turn up. Um, you know, they didn't explode at the time. The impact would have perhaps buried them under the ground, or they would have been buried by the rubble of buildings around that were destroyed, and uh, and so on. So, I'm quite certain that there are, uh, you know, a number of them um, still to be found in places like Plymouth. Um, I've got an acquaintance who's a, a diver down at Falmouth, uh, and he's found uh, a number of bombs under the, uh, the sea in Falmouth, uh, where they were targeting Falmouth docks, but obviously missed. Uh, the bombs fell into the sea, didn't explode. Uh, and he's had to call out the, uh, the naval bomb squad on several occasions to, uh, to deal with ordnance that he's found on the, uh, on the seabed. Um, wow. So, Could I ask you know, who that was? Just because I know some of the divers in Falmouth. Okay, it's a guy called Mark. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Um, but also, I, I mean, at places like Hale, um, uh, we mentioned uh, minefields earlier in the uh, in the program. At Hale, there was a minefield protecting the uh, the beach there. Um, when they came to remove it at the end of the war, there were twenty seven mines unaccounted for. Uh, so those have still got to be in the sand somewhere, uh, Hale Towns, uh, you know, on the, on the beach there. Um, wow. <laughs> I go there all the time. <laughs> don't go paddling. Don't go paddling there. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I... I and I mean, it, when, when a storm comes, uh, you know, it, it will unearth some of the uh, the beach defences from 1940 uh, in Mounts Bay, for example, or uh, Portreath. I think some was unearthed back in 1914 in the big storms we had then. Uh, so, you know, bits and pieces like that are being found uh, around Cornwall all the time. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. As I say, I used to find bits of a Wellington bomber in the 80s when I was a kid running around on Morganporth Beach. So. Yeah. You know. there's, a, there's a guy called Steve Johnson who's done a lot of heritage stuff in uh, in Plymouth uh, and he used to spend his time in the sort of 1980s and 90s uh, going along the uh, sort of the rocks along the uh, the seafront in Plymouth uh, and in the crags of the rocks he was pulling out shrapnel uh, from the war. Wow. Uh, and so wow. yeah, he's got quite a collection of uh, uh, of that. Are you saying about unexploded bombs as well? It wasn't that long ago there was one, they found one um in one of the fields next to RAF St. Evel. wasn't wasn't that long. It was only about, I suppose, well, I suppose coming on about eight, nine years ago now. But I remember them finding that and having to... Uh, that made at least at least local news, um, probably national news, I think. Um, I've, I think mm. I've still got the footage of it being um, activated, as they called it, by the bomb squad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, as I say, you know, Cornwall was the most bombed county in England for for three months in 1941. So we, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised at a, a number of these turning up.
Well, listen, Phil, it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on, and I'd love to have you back on again if, you, if you'd be so kind to do so. Maybe we can have a chat about that after the show. Yeah, no, it's been good. Thank you for having me. Uh, I no, certainly will come back again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Phil. Right, Thanks take, very much. Take care, folks. And coming up next is Jim Fetzer on SpeakFreeRadio.com. Thanks for being here. Oh, brilliant, Phil. That was fantastic. No, well, thank you very much. You know, thank you for making it easy and helping the conversation to flow. So. Yeah, no, well, brilliant. And and to be honest, uh, Shelley, don't worry that you didn't didn't feel like <laughs> I you didn't could contribute. Input. No, but I. I, I was <laughs> no, it's re- nice to listen. It was really nice for me to hear stuff that I didn't know about. Yeah, you know, that Operation Tiger didn't know anything about that. That was that was fantastic. So. Yeah, I, I, I like things like that. Um, just fascinates me. Just like the whole the whole thing fascinates me. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, but by all means, I, I hope I hope you at least get some traffic um, coming your way. And yeah, you could always um, we could always send you the um, link to the podcast when I upload it. And um, you yeah, that'd be brilliant. Share if... that on your website. Yeah. 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 Um... Yeah, or YouTube if you want to. Yeah, feel free. Yeah, I, I mean, some of the family and one or two friends said, you know, they, they were going to try and listen uh, sort of live, uh, as it were. But there are several others that have said, you know, um, if you can send us a recording, then, uh, you know, then please do so. So uh, well, that would be good. I have taken, okay, my, okay. I've taken my own recording. 